You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 19, Krupp Steel Part 2, Alfred Krupp or The Cannon King. Today I'm recording from the world's most expensive Airbnb, Via Wagle. This episode brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. Now, a lot of my listeners probably know about Amazon warehouses and their very poor reputation. They have three times the average warehouse rate of injury, punishing work quotas. They've got people peeing in bottles and so on. Even worse, Amazon is notoriously anti-union and they have large contracts out to spy on their workers. Now, working conditions at Krupp foundries and factories were very grueling, but not in the same ways as Amazon. For instance, instead of crazy work quotas like Amazon has, Krupp foremen would leverage fines for everything. Tardiness, mistakes, even things that would otherwise be misdemeanors handled by the police were all handled instead by Krupp company police. Alfred once walked to his workers' neighborhoods and counted the number of steps to the factory to prove that tardiness should never, ever happen. Every department would lock up their tools, and they required each employee to get a written note to use to leave and use the bathroom. Alfred Krupp also considered his employees' free time to belong to him. Now, very similar to Amazon, Alfred Krupp was insanely anti-union. He wrote a company constitution which included a total blacklist of union agitators and a blacklist on anyone who had ever gone on strike for any reason. This was also not an idle threat, as the Krupp company had their own police and detectives and list of subversives. They also kept a list of every employee and their political affiliations. Even more similar to Amazon, Alfred Krupp had a widespread program of spying on his own workers. In the Krupp mansion via Wegel, there was a crow's nest that allowed Alfred Krupp to crawl to the top of his house and see the factory gate and much of the factory grounds, specifically for spying. He made his workers sign loyalty oaths to the company. Paranoid, he had detectives search every trash bin for clues of any impending strikes. Get this, Alfred Krupp hired an inspector specifically to check waste paper and used toilet paper, just in case there were any seditious notes written on it. This reflected his various obsessions, for instance, controlling the lives of his workers, the Red Menace, and of course his obsession with shit. Alfred Krupp didn't just hate unions, he also ran for public office and failed very publicly. He hated the Social Democrats, and he called LaSalle's politics the seed of the devil. Alfred Krupp wanted to end universal male suffrage. Even worse, he fired any workers that were publicly known to be Social Democrats. Petulant baby that he was, he hung a plaque in his foundry that read, 
The next time I go through the works, I want to feel at home, and I would rather see the factory empty than find some fellow with venom in his heart, such as every social democrat is. As the Krupp concern grew, Essen slowly turned into a company town where the Krupps owned almost every store and institution. Now, to their credit, Essen was a model city for Bismarckian social welfare, and Kruppiana, the name for the Krupp workers, Kruppiana received free houses while employed, which is pretty cool, right? The downside, and there's always a downside, Krupp company police could search their houses at any time for any reason, and if they were ever fired, they were evicted. Still, due to this benefit, turnover was very low due to the steady employment and the benefits. Now, it was Mikhail Bakunin, the Russian anarchist, who noted of the Germans that they want to be at once both masters and slaves. I'm not usually one for loose, sweeping generalizations of entire nationalities, except for the British, of course, but between everything the Krupp workers had to deal with and the weird prevalence of something like, say, Euro truck simulator games being so popular in Germany, and the fact that Germany literally brought back slavery in two different world wars, that it makes me think that maybe Bakunin was probably right about something. Anyway, let's get into the episode. Now, nobody wanted to use steel cannons for the longest time. Cast bronze was the tried and true cannon. Although cast bronze cannons were almost prohibitively expensive, they were the ideal in the Napoleonic era. Now, there was the perception among the military, among European military, that cast bronze was good enough for the British to defeat Napoleon, so it's good enough for us. Steel, in prior eras, had not been advanced enough yet to be so clearly and obviously superior. But it wasn't as simple as just waiting for the technology to just become better and then everyone just immediately adopts it. No, militaries are notorious, at least they used to be, for being slow to adopt new technologies, even though they are also one of the main drivers of technology itself. For example, Samuel Morse, the inventor of the telegram, you know, Morse code, all that, he had to fight Washington, D.C. bureaucracy for eight straight years before the first telegraph wires went up. Alfred Krupp's main battle in life, after figuring out how to make cast steel, was selling the Prussian government on steel cannons, and it would drag out through the rest of his entire life. In 1847, Alfred Krupp sent the first steel cannon to the Prussian government. The Prussian government did not test or use it, and it was just as well because the British would defeat Napoleon at Waterloo in 1849, using bronze cannons. In 1851, the first World's Fair was held in London. In a throwback to agricultural fairs, where farmers would show off giant produce or particularly beautiful farm animals, industrialists would hold competitions to show off their wares, and one of the key competitions was 
who could cast the biggest single block of cast steel? Sheffield Steelmaker showed up with a 2,400-pound ingot, but Krupp showed up with a 4,300-pound ingot. Crowds loved it, and experts called it a technical miracle. At the same World Fair, it was normal for these industrialists to show off their different products, and Krupp certainly did, like the cutlery, the train components, and so on. But what captivated the World Fair audience was Krupp's six-pound polished steel cannon, similar to the one that he delivered to the Prussian government. Even Queen Victoria stopped to admire the cannon, and newspapers from all over the world wrote about this cannon. Now, U.S. steelmakers brought a steel plow, polished and decorated in a similar fashion to the cannon, but the public ignored it. The public wanted swords, not plowshares. Alfred Krupp put love and marriage off for a long time getting his business up and running, securing the bag, so to speak. A classic story of the Victorian era. But when he married, he seemed to marry for love. When he found his bride, Bertha, conveniently, he found her in the social circles of his steel customers. When he found Bertha, he said, where I supposed I had nothing but a piece of cast steel, I found that I had a heart. Aww. This would be very sweet, except he didn't pick a good wife. Or, to be fair, perhaps his own character would have prevented any marriage from being a happy one. Either way, his marriage was a disaster. For one thing, Alfred Krupp wanted and or needed a mothering type of wife. Take your pick. Instead, he married another hypochondriac. Now, it's probably not a good idea for people with similar neuroses to marry. Here's a program to chill tip for you. You gotta find different neuroses to be codependent over. You can't have two people both being hypochondriacs. That's just not gonna work. So, to endear himself to his new bride... Alfred Krupp built a new house for them to live in. And I simply must read a description of this house as described by William Manchester. The groom called it their garden house. Photographs of it are extant and they are appalling. One would call it the most insane structure in a period of artistic lunacy, except that late in life Alfred was to demonstrate how wild an architect he could be when he really put his mind to it. More on that to come. Nevertheless, the garden house had its own peculiarities. Built right in the middle of the works, it was surrounded by hothouses, sheltering peacocks, grapevines, and pineapples. Atop the roof, a glassed-in crow's nest, previously mentioned, permitted the head of the household to peer out at the factory gate and spy on tardy workers. Before the front door stretched an intricate maze of formal gardens, fountains, Islands gay with flowers and grottoes fashioned of slag. The garden house faced away from the Gustav Fabrik, which was the Krupp foundry and factories. And Alfred was confident that his wife, provided she stayed out of his crow's nest, need never be reminded of, his, of its presence. Unquote. Now, Berta hated being, <laughs> hated 
the house being so close to the factories. And she did seem to be onto something here because because the house was so close to the foundry and factories that the house would become coated with soot. And plates and glasses would fall from shelves due to the heavy machinery's movements. By all accounts, she hated the house. Even worse, Alfred never wanted to take his wife anywhere, like to a concert in town. He would say, Sorry, it's impossible. I must see that my smokestacks continue to smoke, and when I hear my forge tomorrow, that will be music more exquisite than the playing of all the world's fiddles. Which is just like the world's most cartoonish version of a capitalist, of a 19th century capitalist, right? Now, fellows and ladies, don't neglect your spouse in order to keep your factory running. That's right. Program to Chill is now pivoting into becoming a relationship podcast. So, Berta conceived almost immediately. And it would be the only child that they would have. His name was Friedrich Alfred Krupp. Although, for simplicity, we will call him Fritz. We will definitely get to Fritz. Do not worry. But Berta was so unhappy with the house and with her marriage that she started leaving to stay at resort spas for increasingly longer periods of time, and she would often take Fritz with her. And Alfred Krupp would complain quite a bit about her absences, but he was unwilling or unable to accommodate her in any way. In some ways, he was actually a hilarious husband, because he, the efficiency-minded arch-industrialist, came up with a form letter that he would use when writing to his wife. Even more neurotically, he came up with a form for her to use when writing to him, which is just so controlling and insane, it's, it like boggles the mind. Now, in his defense, Alfred Krupp seemed like a devoted father, with quotes from his letters saying things like, I found Fritz as cheerful as ever, and yesterday he ate like a navy. I received such an outburst of joy. And regarding his marriage, he would write to Berta things like, I am really no good alone, and I am in poor spirits without you. Which is pretty sad, although Alfred Krupp seemed like an insufferable, suffocating type of person. So in 1852... Alfred Krupp made his first contact with Kaiser Wilhelm I. And this was when the Kaiser was still mentally active. The Kaiser gave Krupp the Order of the Red Eagle. It would be the first, but certainly not the last, time a head of state visited the Krupp factories and bestowed honors upon the family. But still, as of this point, the sale of cannons and weapons was not their bread and butter. Looking back on his life, Alfred Krupp said it was only through the manufacture of tires, meaning train tires, under the protection of our patents that the works were able to make enough profit to lay down the gun-making plant. And that is how the Krupp business grew. The forks and spoons funded an expansion into the railroad business, making tires especially, and the railroad tires funded an expansion into the munitions business. Alfred Krupp basically invented the modern seamless steel train tire, and the rights to it made him phenomenally rich. The Krupp company logo, the three interlocking circles, refer to those train tires. 
in later years, people would think that it was maybe referring to cannons or something, but the original logo referred to the train tires. These train tires were so good that, for a time, literally every single country with trains was using them. Except Prussia. That's right, the same forces that were preventing Prussia from adopting steel cannons were also preventing the, them from using Krupp's steel tires, even to their own detriment. Now, to an extent, this was Alfred Krupp's own fault. For a variety of reasons, but not least of which because at one point the Minister of Commerce named August von der Heidt came to visit the Krupp facilities and Alfred snubbed him because he thought he was a spy. Then, realizing that he was the Minister of Commerce and not a spy, Alfred Krupp overcorrected and got a giant portrait of von der Heidt and hung it over his desk and told him that he, that the portrait was intended to encourage and inspire me to make a success of things, just as Christ must strive in his way of life after nothing meaner than the Godhead. Now, von der Heidt, now, von der Heidt probably thought Alfred Krupp was being sarcastic, although he was probably not being sarcastic, and he thought that he was being mocked, even though he probably wasn't. This misunderstanding caused a lifelong blood feud between von der Heidt, the Prussian government, and the Krupp concern. And this lifelong feud would not be healed until well into his son Fritz's reign. In this era, though, the Krupp company began making and selling cannons to every nation that would buy them. And almost every country except for Prussia started buying Krupp cannons. Imperial Russia was the main buyer at this point, but they also sold guns to Belgium, Holland, Spain, Switzerland, Austria, and Great Britain. Now, this is funny, because selling directly to monarchs is risky, because monarchs are flaky and they will often not pay. I mean, we already saw that with Vienna, with the debacle with the mint press, but... Here we also have another example, the Duke of Brunswick. The Duke of Brunswick had accepted a delivery of a Krupp gun as a gift, and then failed to send even an acknowledgement that he got it. The King of Hanover ordered a $1,500 cannon, had offered $1,000 for it, and then ended up paying nothing. After a certain point, Alfred Krupp was literally draped head to toe in honors and medals from every country, but he didn't want honors and medals, he wanted cash. Now, it was around this time that Bismarck was about to just steamroll across Europe and also unify Germany. Bismarck said to the Frankfurt Parliament, Germany looks not to Prussia's liberalism, but to her force. The great questions of the day will not be settled by resolutions and majority votes, but by iron and blood. Eisen und Blut. Alfred Krupp and Bismarck got along great, and Bismarck, who was already in the process of modernizing the Prussian military, Bismarck wanted to use Krupp's new technologies, his cannons, and his steel tires. Around the same time, Krupp engineers were developing both rifling for the cannons 
and also the technique of making the cannons breech loading, which is to say loading from the back rather than from the front of the cannon. With each of these new innovations, the Prussian military would just refuse. Just straight out, no, we're not doing that. Later on, we'll see how the Krupp company started no longer asking the military what they wanted and just innovating for the sake of innovating because they knew that the military would adopt something if it worked. Very interesting. Kind of shows, you know, one of those tail wagging the dog situations in some ways. Alfred Krupp had promised Field Marshal Albrecht von Roon, one of Bismarck's top generals, that he would never, ever sell a gun which might someday be turned against Prussia. Yet, his main buyer, of course, was Russia, and one of his next top buyers was England. So it was literally inevitable that this promise would be broken. And, to be fair, Prussia was not yet buying Krupp cannons, so in a way, Alfred didn't really have a choice. Still, it's very ironic. There was a time when England was buying Krupp cannons, and the Prussian army was buying cannons from England. Colonel Blimp was literally a documentary. Still, this makes the Krupp family's posturing all the more ironic, because they were positioning themselves as the arch-German industrialist family whose name was synonymous in some ways with Germany itself. Yet this was not technically true yet. In this era, in 1864, newspapers reported the details of Krupp contracts to provide cannons for Russia. And in every newspaper they were calling him, they began calling him the Cannon King, which was a name that stuck for the rest of the dynasty's life. Every subsequent Krupp would, would often be called the Cannon King, and Alfred loved to be called the Cannon King. In the 1860s, Alfred Krupp rebuilt his entire series of factories, and he became absolutely obsessed with vertical integration. And vertical integration reaped enormous rewards in the coal and coke-rich Ruhr Valley. They acquired the rights to the Bessemer process, too, to make steel, but the Bessemer process wasn't suitable for their inputs, so they didn't end up using it, ironically. In the Austro-Prussian War of 1866, Krupp cannons did not perform very well, and several exploded, killing their artillerymen. For a brief period of time, Alfred Krupp thought he was completely ruined, and he did the most Howard Hughes thing you could possibly do. He just ran away. At several points in his life, Alfred Krupp was known to just flee, and or just pretend to be sick. Also, if you'll remember, <laughs> Alfred Krupp's father, at one point, basically just gave up on life, stared at a wall for two years, and then died. So, in some ways, this is a learned behavior, I guess you could say. So, after the Austro-Prussian War of 1866, where the Krupp cannons exploded, he just left, left his factories, business, all the deals he was working on, and he just fled to Nice, where his wife was staying, recuperating. I'm doing air quotes there. And him visiting his wife was also a disaster. And I'll quote Manchester again. 
Rumors that invisible horns had crowned the wig are highly speculative. Certainly Frau Krupp had had opportunities for affairs, exceptional in that era, and photographs hint at an astonishing change in her, suggesting a buxom, vigorous woman in her early thirties who appeared to be sensual, tousled, and dissolute. Now, far be it from me to suggest that Alfred Krupp was being cheated on, but it was a very common rumor of the time. Luckily for him, Carl Siemens had just figured out how to make open hearth furnaces, which allowed for impure ore to be to make even more steel of even higher quality than the Bessemer process. This is very important because Alfred Krupp had a massive amount of impure lower quality ore and a lot of coke. So he acquired the rights to the Siemens process. The Krupp empire was about to explode with success. And in some ways, the Krupp empire would grow to be more powerful than Prussia itself. As a side note, it was around this time that a young Sigmund Freud examined Alfred Krupp. But, but, he gave him a physical examination, not a round of psychotherapy. Which is so sad. We could have gotten so much more. We could have, we could have gotten, we could have gotten a profile of his psychosis, of his neuroses. But Freud was not yet doing that. He was, at this stage, he was mostly a doctor. In giving him a physical examination, Freud couldn't find anything wrong with him. Which is fitting, of course, because Alfred Krupp was a hypochondriac, not a sick man. Alfred Krupp, to his credit, kept trying to win Bertha's affections. If the Gartenhaus didn't do it, why, he would build an even bigger mansion to win her love. Which, on the one hand, it's kind of sweet, trying to win your wife's love. But on the other hand, building one and then a different, building two different mansions, is not, you know, the way to win someone's love and affection. But, I mean, no one ever accused 19th century capitalists of not being cartoonishly bad people, so here we are. Now, the story of this second mansion is one of my favorite stories in the entire Krupp saga. So, they would work on this mansion for 10 straight years for a variety of hilarious reasons, because there were many constant issues with its construction. Now, to describe the house, I'm going to again quote from Manchester here, because it is so beautiful. Alfred Krupp had reviewed the talents of all leading architects on the continent and decided that the most highly qualified was Alfred Krupp. For five years, he toiled intermittently over the plans. There may still be seen in the family archives a frightful jumble of penciled pothookery, with innumerable directions and admonitions in the margins. All reflect his potpourri of phobias. Wooden beams were out. They were inflammable, so Krupp's castle would be constructed entirely of steel and stone. Gas mains, of course, were unthinkable. By now, he wrote as fluently in dark as in light, and visiting crowns could glitter just as well by the light of candelabra. The privacy of the householder would, was to be sacred. His bedchamber would be guarded by three barriers of triple-locked doors. Since he hated drafts, they led to pneumonia, of course, all windows would be permanently sealed. The ventilation would 
be provided by unique ducts invented by the architect. That raised the problem of manure. Alfred Krupp gave a lot of thought to this. Then it came to him in a flash. Gott sei Dank, what an idea. He could build his study directly over the stable, with shafts to waft the scent upward. And that is precisely what he decided to do, crowning, so to speak, on his private dunghill. Via Wegel, the hillside via, so it would be known. After three centuries in Essen, the house of Krupp was to have a permanent home, two of them actually, for the mansion proper, which would include a second-floor private apartment for Wilhelm, was to be linked by a low two-story gallery to Das Kleinhaus, the small house, an independent wing. Via Wegel would be more than just a family seat. It would be a monument which would astonish all of Europe. In conception, Alfred's via was an edificial nightmare. In execution, it was to become worse. Even today, one boggles at a description of it. There is something quite incredible about the castle. Presumably, the facade was meant to be Renaissance, but here and there, the limestone mass is broken by bleak square entrances, curiously like those of German railroad stations. And indeed, the grotesque superstructure on the roof bears an uncanny resemblance to the train terminal in Cologne. Strolling the perimeter, one unexpectedly encounters encounters accusing eyes carved into the stone and the statues of lionesses sprouting bomb-shaped human breasts. Inside, the feeling of lunacy is heightened. If these walls could talk, one feels, they would say something preposterous. It is characteristic of the place that no one really knows how many chambers there really are. Krupp's present family archivist believes there are 156 rooms in the big house, 60 in Das Kleinhaus, 216 in total, but a recent count reached as high as 300, and it depends on what you call a room. The interior is a mad labyrinth of great halls, hidden doors, and secret passages and it is unwise to drink too many schnapps in Via Wegel. During construction, there was one disaster after another. First there was a hurricane, then rains flooded the construction site. Then they had to completely rebuild the foundation. Finally, a crucial supply was cut off. The entire house was being built with French limestone, but at the time of construction, the Franco-Prussian War had broken out delaying construction even longer. Now, the Austro-Prussian War debacle mostly blew over, and Krupp cannons would go on to perform extremely well in the Franco-Prussian War. That's an understatement. The Krupp cannons in the Franco-Prussian War had almost exactly twice the range of the French bronze cannons, and almost twice the accuracy and rate of fire. It was almost like having a secret weapon, and Krupp steel would be key in two more incredible German military achievements and wars to come. Alfred Krupp truly became the cannon king in this period. His company was racing ahead, making all kinds of new techniques and technologies in munitions. The concern started making bigger and bigger cannons for battleships and also as artillery pieces. They also started to invent anti-aircraft guns. It has been asserted, fairly in my opinion, that Krupp cannons totally rewrote the balance of power in Europe. 
There's one anecdote I like where the principal where the principality of Andorra bought a Krupp cannon only to find out that they literally could not test fire it without hitting either French or Spanish soil, as its range was simply too long. Alfred Krupp continued to have problems with the Prussian government, and he would constantly threaten to relocate his plants and foundries somewhere else, like Russia. And... In, eight, in the 1870s, the civic leadership of Birmingham, Alabama, made serious real proposals to Alfred Krupp about him relocating there. It was never really a serious possibility, though, since heavy industry is nothing if not heavy, and it doesn't move that often. And the Ruhr Valley is far too rich in coal and coke for them to be located anywhere else. But... It is curiously like modern-day corporations threatening to move their facilities if they don't get the tax breaks they want. Now, Alfred Krupp was almost irresponsibly dedicated to vertical integration, and he just kept on buying more and more mines. Obviously, the more mines you have, the more freight, freight ships you need, so he kept buying and building freighters. In one year, he made down payments on 300 different mines and four very expensive freight ships. His bankers started getting afraid of how exposed he was. This is a story that happens almost every generation with the Krupps, it seems. Then, in 1873, there was a global wave of bank failures that almost ruined the Krupp company, on top of more problems with the construction of Via Wegel. Basically on cue, then Alfred's health started to fail, as it always would any time any adversity impacted his business whatsoever. He would have to spend at least a week to recover. Now, when you're rich, you can get doctors to do anything you want. Alfred's doctors were hilariously enabling. He had one doctor who had basically just one treatment style for him which consisted of standing over Alfred laying in bed and screaming, Get up! The same doctor also banned cigars and told Alfred to only drink one glass of red wine a day and to get plenty of fresh air. Alfred gave up on cigars, but he thought he was real slick by realizing the doctor didn't say how large of a glass of wine he was allowed. He found one of those two-liter glasses and would drink nearly half a gallon of wine instead. Alfred Krupp was literally that guy with that stupid joke. And, regarding fresh air, Alfred Krupp literally didn't believe fresh air was good for you. And he kept on huffing the scent of dung instead because he thought that was healthier. In France, Alfred Krupp saw a different doctor for one of his invariably fake hypochondriac episodes, and the doctor diagnosed him with hypochondria bordering on insanity. Alfred never saw that doctor again, obviously, and kept his go-to doctor, whose chief qualification seemed to have been meekness and a bottomless reservoir of sympathy. Again, real Howard Hughes hours, except with less germophobia and opioids, and far more concern about bad humors and shit. Towards the end of his life, Alfred became convinced that his body odor was toxic, which, lol, I mean, maybe it was, maybe he had some bad B.O., but 
He believed that he could exhaust a room's supply of oxygen within an hour, leaving him to slowly asphyxiate. Maybe if he had designed via Wiggle with windows that could be opened, he could, he could have avoided this problem. But also, that's a neurotic, insane thing to believe. Also, laying in bed, slowly asphyxiating, stewing in your toxic body odors. Talk about a metaphor for a long life of sin, right? Now, for many years, U.S. trains all over the country were relying on Krupp tires and rails. E.H. Harriman, for, for example, placed a single order for 25,000 tons of 80-pound rails for the Southern Pacific, a full year's supply. In just 1874, Essen shipped out 175,000 tons of rails. However, and Krupp was aware of this, U.S. steel kept getting better and better every year, and it was only a matter of time before Krupp was pushed out of the American train market. By 1880, which was also possibly the height for U.S. steel, Krupp was completely pushed out. Now, the Krupp concern knew that this was coming, so they knew they had to double down on weapons production. Weapons, which of course would go on to ravage Europe. Alfred Krupp, having almost no relationship with his wife and a strained relationship to his son, spent all of his time reading war reports and trying to figure out how to sell more cannons. There's a curious episode, which took place in 1873, which might reflect Alfred's mental state in his later years. He and his engineers built what they called the Panzer Cannon, which was a giant cannon that relied on very thick bar armor to protect its artillerymen. Prussian generals expressed doubt that the armor would work, so Alfred volunteered to get in the cannon and allow himself to be shelled with live ammo. To me, this sounds a little bit like a death wish. Alfred Krupp at this time, of course, was sad and lonely, and his wife increasingly just wasn't there at all. So he tried to do quasi-divorced guy things like befriending artists in Dusseldorf. Apparently, he tried to be friends with Franz Liszt. Towards the end of his life, miserable as he always was, Alfred wrote, I am presently nearly only a skin with some bones. The rest is gas. He died of a heart attack in 1887 with a pencil in his hand, writing a memo. What can we learn from the story of Alfred Krupp? For one thing, it seems like abusing your employees is timeless, even as the types of abuse may change. Along the same lines, businesses love to be anti-union, although as we've discussed from prior episodes, Krupp had more of a reason to be anti-union than other industries since they were in the heavy industry sector. Another life lesson, obviously, is don't design your own house. Unless, I guess, maybe you're an architect, right? And especially, don't bank on winning your family's affections on the houses that you design for them. Along the same lines, we can see that rich people are often tragically unhappy, which is ironic, but perhaps understandable. You commit crimes to become or stay rich, and that undermines the happiness that wealth would otherwise bring. Also, while it may not be the most insightful thing I've ever said, it looks like it pays off dramatically if your army has the new technology, provided that this new technology works. Prussian Krupp cannons 
being literally twice as good as French cannons in the Franco-Prussian War is a good example. A major victory like that was worth more in the munitions field than all the advertising and salesmen. Then we see how too much vertical integration can be a bad thing, especially when you're over-leveraged, obviously, and we will see that time and time again in the Krupp family saga. Still, Germany never, never had to deal with antitrust laws. They were always able to get away with higher degrees of vertical integration, and this made German companies extremely profitable. Another lesson I guess we could draw is that the smell of dung is probably not good for your health, actually. Then we saw that arms and munitions is a great way to make money, especially when you're selling them to governments. But it's probably not a good racket to be in if you want to be happy or save your soul. We all remember Sarah Winchester and the Winchester House, right? She believed she was haunted by the spirits of those slain by Winchester rifles. And her fortune, of course, was based off of those rifles. So she built her crazy house in response, right? Well, I don't think it's that crazy. Whether or not you believe in the tangible reality of something like ghosts, karma, or sins, it seems likely that if you spend your whole life fixating on death and make your living off of providing weapons of death, it makes sense that that burden might start to weigh on you, you know? Now, there's a legend about the Via Wagel estate. There's a tree right by the entrance to the estate. It's gigantic, and they call it the Blutbusch, or the Blood Beach, as it was a beech tree. It was large when they first built Via Wagel, and by now it's gigantic. The Ruhr workers say that its blood-red leaves have become more red with each decade of arms sales and with the millions and millions of gallons of blood spilled by the Krupp family. For sources today, I used the book The Arms of Krupp, as well as the book The House of Krupp, and the book Blood and Steel. Thank you for listening, dear listener. I'm on my way to the Hotel Bristol on the island of Capri. See you next week, and God bless. Durch Deutschland geht ein tiefer Riss, der spaltet die Nation. Ne Neuheit ist das nicht gewiss, doch von Interesse schon. Das Beispiel Krupp und Krause klärt den wirklichen Verlauf. Der deutschen Spaltung zugehört als Klassenfrage auf. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit. Das ist der Klassengegensatz den jeder Mann versteht. Herr Krupp, der Boss der Industrie, im Club der reichsten Herren, besitzt Fabriken, Zechen, die vieltausend Mann ernähren. Als einer von zigtausend Mann steht Krause Tag für Tag in Krupps Fabrik zur Arbeit an, sein Stundenlohn fünf Mark. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr, und Krause ist Polit, das ist der Klassengegensatz, den jeder Mann versteht. Was Krause stündlich produziert, ist mehr als fünf Mark wert. 
Der Mehrwert wird von Krupp kassiert, weil dem das Werk gehört. Und tausenden Kollegen geht's wie Krause jeden Tag. Herr Krupp nimmt sich den Mehrwert stets als Kapitalertrag. Wenn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Prolet, das ist der Kassen jeden Satz, den jedermann versteht. Ist Konjunktur und angespannt der Arbeitsstellenmarkt, wird Krause Partner Krupps genannt, denn dann ist er gefragt. Doch ist der Wirtschaftshimmel trüb, die Auftragslage flau, dann droht den Krauses im Betrieb Entlassung, Lohnabbau. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit, das ist der Klassengegensatz den jedermann versteht. Die Spaltung hier in diesem Staat erklärt sich folglich so, was Krupp an Macht und Reichtum hat, ist krauses Risiko. In anderen deutschen Staaten, da gibt es die Krupp nicht mehr. Da sind die Krause selbst für wahr die Herren der DDR. Damit sich Krupp nie wieder dort etablieren kann, schreibt Krause für die DDR, die an 